Uh, good morning again, Hillside, and welcome this morning. I'm so glad you are tuning in, and uh, thank you, Ellie, Matt, and Emily, for the way you led us in worship today. Uh, so good. I, I just uh, value the fact that even though church is really different right now, we're still the church. <laughs> we're, we're still this unique part of the body of Christ called Hillside, and it matters that we connect in whatever way we can and, and worship and pray and all those good things. And, and this morning we're continuing on in our series called God Has a Name, and we're walking through Exodus 34, 6 to 7, this unveiling of God's name and his character. And last week we talked about God giving us his name to differentiate himself from other gods, other small g gods. And today is part two, and I promised that I would not answer all of your questions, of which there should be many, because this morning we're gonna be looking at some biggies. Uh, We're gonna briefly look at what all of this means for us, this reality of God among other gods. You ready to to jump in? I'd suggest you buckle up. We're covering a lot of ground this morning, so why don't we pause and pray for a moment. Father God, uh, Almighty One, Jesus, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Lead us, we pray. Uh, Give us your mind and your perspective today. I I pray we might uh, align ourselves with you and your view of the world. Lead us and uh, guide us, uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where we left off last time, we talked about the the kind of menace and, and power of these lesser gods as evidenced kind of throughout the whole Uh, Old Testament story. And then finally in Psalm 82, the people of God are are kind of fed up and and they're crying out to God for deliverance from the powers that be. And and Jesus comes as the answer to their prayer. Now when Jesus came, as, as we said, he came as the embodiment of Yahweh. God made flesh. And the New Testament writers make it really clear as they look at Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection, that one of Jesus' primary goals, his primary agenda, was to disarm the powers who were at war with Yahweh. Listen to John's summary of what Jesus came to do. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. And then Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and also Acts, says this in Acts 10. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. And then Mark writes, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, this whole driving out demons business by Jesus is is significant to notice because in the whole Old Testament, you don't read one story of an exorcism. There's no demons being kind of cast into pigs. There's no one being freed from an unclean spirit. But the New Testament is just kind of chocker block full of stories of Jesus dealing with demons, casting them out. What's that all about? Well, it's Yahweh at work in Jesus, putting an end to the bondage and injustice of the gods and we really see this very clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You, you know on Good Friday, that, that day when, when Jesus died, it, it looked like God lost. That, 
that God was beaten, game over, Jesus the Son hanging dead on the cross. It looks like the end, it feels like the end, but three days later there's an empty tomb and Jesus is alive and, and somehow through Christ's death and, and resurrection the powers of the gods are forever thwarted. Somehow the cross and resurrection changes everything with regards to the power of the gods. Let me see if I can help you understand this. We see something of this in the death of Martin Luther King Jr. As you know, King was one of the key and core leaders of the American civil rights movement, and he'd been working tirelessly for years to bring racial equality to to the US. And then tragically, on April 4th, 1968, just a a few days after my birthday actually, I, I know this, Martin Luther King was assassinated on his balcony. And and it looked like the civil rights movement was dead in the water as a result of Martin Luther King's death. But actually, rather than silencing Martin Luther King, it had actually the opposite effects. You see, at the same time that the Civil Civil Rights Act was being debated in government, and, and, and then there was this backlash, and there was protests, and there was all this pressure that came from Martin Luther King's death, and it led to the passing of the Civil Rights Act. It was signed by President Johnson, put into power on April 11th, just, just a week after the death of Martin Luther King. And the way that Martin Luther King's defeat actually led to a profound victory over the evil of, of racism, I think is a, a helpful image for us as to how we think of the victory achieved in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Listen to how the the Apostle Paul describes the scope of this victory. He says, having disarmed, Jesus having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Triumph. Jesus is making a a public spectacle of the the powers and principalities. He, He puts them to shame. Now, I wonder, as we've thought about the cross over the years, we've sometimes, I think, missed this particular way of understanding the cross. Theologians call it Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ is Victor or Christ is Victorious. And the idea behind Christus Victor is simple. Yahweh has been at war with the spiritual powers of the universe for a long, long time, and the cross is is Yahweh's decisive blow against evil, the breakthrough victory. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and his minions. He even defeated, as we know, death itself. And so theologians and scholars like N.T. Wright and John Mark Comer and even John Stott suggest that this has often been a neglected view uh, or understanding of the cross, but it has a direct effect on how we follow Jesus. Comer suggests this. He says, what D-Day was to World World War II, Jesus' death and resurrection were in the war against the evil powers. You you remember D-Day? D-Day was the day when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy, regaining a foothold in conquered Europe. And basically, by the next day, June 7th, 1944, Hitler and, and the whole Nazi 
regime were done. They, they, they had no chance of winning. The, the war was effectively over. Of course, we know that for about the next year, they, they fought brutally trying to hold on, but, but they were done, and, and the victory was finally and fully accomplished on May, May 8th, 1945. And, and the deal for us is we live between D-Day and that final victory. As, as Comer says, we live between Jesus' first coming to land the decisive blow and his second coming to end evil for good. In the meantime, what do we do? He says, our job is to stand in that victory, to hold our ground, to cooperate with heaven's invasion of earth. He says, yes, we fight, but our fight isn't with swords or spears or with AK-47s or with tanks. It's with prayer and with sacrificial love. He basically points us to the, the cross shapes cruciform posture of the follower of Jesus and that the, the follower of Jesus, our, our way of fighting is actually getting on our knees and, and giving our life away. Now, folks, I, I, I think it's easy for us to kind of dismiss all of this idea of a, a spiritual world or an invisible world around us and this whole idea of a battle going on because, let's face it, we're hugely shaped by our, our secular worldview. Worldview is simply how we see the world, how we view the world. And most people, at least in Western culture, tend to think wissy-wiggy. That's a computer term, which means what you see is what you get. This idea of a spiritual world feels about as believable as stranger things, right? We've grown up with a a worldview that emphasizes our five senses alone and it gives very little thought or attention to any other way or anything else. And, and yet, I, I think if we're honest, a secular worldview isn't entirely satisfying. It, it doesn't seem to explain the very real presence of evil in our world. That, that dark sense of oppression that I, I talked about last week when I walked by Willie Picton's farm before it was uncovered uh, that he was a mass murderer. I, I think we get clues in our world from time to time. We kind of bump into them or we have a sense of something greater or something else going on. It's, it's kind of like Neo in the Matrix, right? He's, he's, got a, he's living in this computer-generated reality and every once in a while there's a, a flaw or a glimpse of something else going on. Part of following Jesus is having Jesus revision our worldview. In fact, Jesus wants to reshape how we look at everything. And and, and the worldview of Jesus is that there is one true creator God, and he is over all other gods. He's not just bigger and, and better. He's in a totally other category. And he's the only one worthy of the title God. He's the one called Yahweh in the Old Testament and our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the New. And in Jesus, he comes down to rescue us and, and save the world. Save us from our sin, absolutely, but also free us from the power of these other gods. This is uh, obviously good news. <laughs> 
but it has all kinds of implications. I want to focus this morning on three, and I'm just kind of loosely following John Mark Comer's lead here, but we'll think about three implications of how we think about evil and spirituality and idolatry. First evil, this is kind of a biggie. Uh, because it's one of the biggest objections that people have to the idea of a good God. The, the thinking goes, if there is a God and he is all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there evil or suffering in the world? We, we've all probably heard that asked before. We've all probably, probably asked that question at some point. It's what philosophers call the problem of evil. And it is really tough to reconcile I was talking to a friend a couple months ago, and he confessed to me that, that he really struggles whenever he's watching the news and when there's ever any kind of injustice that's directed towards children or kids, it immediately makes him mad at God. <laughs> you know, it makes it hard for him to believe in a God who is good and merciful and loving when he sees hurting kids. Now, I gotta say, not all cultures wrestle with the problem of evil quite like ours does. Many theologians and thinkers have observed that it seems like this is far more of an issue among Western Christians and Western cultures. You know, we, we in Canada, we have a very uh, significant, we have a very specific idea of the good life, largely defined by the absence of suffering, right? And so when evil or suffering comes, it, it clashes quite profoundly with our pain avoidance culture. But it seems that these kind of questions are less prevalent in parts of the world where, where things are already less comfortable, where, where suffering is kind of just part of life. Here's the other thing. We also don't find they wrestle with this question in Scripture quite like we do. Scripture writers have little or nothing to say about the problem of evil, at least not in the philosophical sense. In their worldview, evil was assumed. I mean, think of Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Notice what Jesus assumes in that prayer, that God's will was not done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I love how John Mark Comer explains this. He says, for Jesus, heaven is the place where God's will is done all the time. Earth, on the other hand, is the place where God's will is done some of the time. Because on earth, there are other wills at play. God isn't the only one with a will, an agenda for what he wants to see happen in the world and the capacity to carry it out. So who else has a will? Well, human beings, of course, have a measure of free will. And so do spiritual beings. It, it, it seems at time that, that nature itself kind of has a will of its own. That's kind of a lot of wills, right? And all of these wills, which, which you know, we're th thinking billions of people and however many spiritual creatures, nature, they're all living in God's good, free world. We kind of share the same space. And some are living under God's life-giving authority, and others are in flat-out rebellion to that authority. Now, this doesn't mean that God is weak-willed or, or there's an equal playing field with all of the wills. Somehow, in the universe that God has created, 
Love is the highest value. And, and you can't have love without choice, and choice demands freedom. So God, is he all-powerful? Yes, he is. But he limits his power because of his love. He doesn't just kind of override all other wills. Instead, he's created a, a world with space for real and genuine freedom for his, his creatures. This is not Stepford Wives. And then as Comer says, and evil is the byproduct of that freedom God built into the fabric of the universe. Put simply, God is incredibly good, but the world is terrifyingly free, dangerous, beautiful place to call home. I know, right? This is like the thorny one. This is an insufficient answer to one of the tougher questions. But here's the thing I want you to think about. I, I keep bumping into this. You probably do too. You know, when, when people interpret the bad events that happen in their lives, they rarely give sufficient space for the free will of human beings, much less that of spiritual beings. And we had a kind of hand just dismiss spiritual realities like Satan, the devil, and dark spiritual forces that have some kind of measure of power and, and authority in the world. We ignore those. And who do we blame instead? It, it's like God's wearing this big bullseye t-shirt, you know, ready to take blame for everything. And we end up attributing the evil one's evil to God. Happens all the time. Do you know in Jesus' prayer, the prayer, remember that line about evil? Deliver us from evil? The original language was far more personal. It actually says deliver us from the evil one. Why would Jesus ask us to pray that? Because there is an evil one. We, we, we live in a battleground. There, there's this cosmic battle going on. Why else would the, the apostle Paul say, we struggle not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the, the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, the scripture writers just assume the universe is full of actual, real, spiritual beings who have a degree of power to kind of move empires, to un unleash injustice, to stop the answers of, of prayer to, to shape natural disasters and even kind of move people to fulfill their dark agendas. One, one theologian put it like this. When one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity, there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing intelligence and free will there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the, the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. And, and don't get me wrong here. I, I, I don't think we're meant to think that everything that bad that happens in our lives is meant to be blamed on the devil. It's, it's just when evil does come our way, when we see and, and interact and, and see evil in our lives, we're not meant to lose our faith in the goodness of God. We, we grieve and we lament at the injustice that goes on in our world. And we pray for God's kingdom to come. 
to his will to be done for up there to come down here. And we work with Jesus to bring up there down here. We, we get in on, on acts of justice and love and kindness in our world. That's spiritual warfare, folks. We work with him to, to fight and to heal and reverse the injustice and, and bring in the new creation. And of course, we look forward to the day with great hope when Jesus will return to, to fully defeat evil once and for all. Amen? Okay, moving on. What about spirituality? We, we live in a day when you ask people, uh, you know, especially in Vancouver, what they believe about faith, you'll likely hear some version of, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or I don't, I'm not into organized religion, or, or something like that. And in light of a, a Jesus worldview, a legitimate response might be, actually, if you say you're spiritual, which spirit? <laughs> you see, as Christians, we don't deny that there are other spirits that, with which you can engage and worship and participate with. Push comes to shove, we believe that the spirit of Jesus is simply better than any other spirit, right? That's what we believe. He's better than any other option. The spirit of Jesus is good and wholesome and loving. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. But there are other spirits, which means we ought to be cautious and discerning around all things spiritual. You know, when someone uh, gets baptized at Hillside, one of the things we ask them to do is we ask them to read a pledge, a pledge kind of stating their, their commitment to Jesus and, and, and pledging their faith in him. And we have one line of renunciation, which is a fancy word, which means renouncing something or saying no to something. We ask them th this question, and we say, do you renounce any and all previous involvement in other religions or other spiritualistic practices, and do you now commit yourself to the lifelong worship of the one true God as revealed in the Lord Jesus? I often feel like when I ask this question of those, those who are taking that step that it's, it, it's such an important moment, this renouncing of, of those other spirits in our class, when we're explaining this, we talk about the dangers of, of certain practices that are kind of common in our day, like, like getting your palm read, or consulting a psychic, or, or reading tarot cards, or, or playing with a Ouija board. Uh, and it's not just, these, the concern in scriptures, these aren't just arbitrary things. We renounce these things, or we take great caution around these spiritualistic practices because some of them actually put us dangerous in touch with invisible but real spiritual beings. And you could say, where those spirits are, there is not freedom. So this worldview affects how we think about spirituality, how we're gonna treat the spiritual, and also idolatry. I said this last week, scripture has all kinds of warnings all throughout in the Old Testament, uh, warnings against idolatry, it made number two of the top 10 commandments. And it's all throughout the New Testament as well. Paul says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. John writes, 
dear children, keep yourself from idols. It's like a parent worried about his, his kids. Now on the surface, when, when the Bible talks about idols, it's first addressing the kind of idols uh, that day which were made of wood or metal, statues and those kind of things. And ancient, ancient cities would have been proliferated with temples that were filled with idols, idols everywhere you went. There was a whole industry in that day that were dedicated to the manufacture of idols. And and some of the idols were literally just hunks of rock and pieces of metal and wood. And so if you bowed down to that, what would be the big deal? Like it's no deal, right? But as we talked about last week, some idols can actually be a gateway to a relationship with a, spiritual, a real spiritual being, and when someone worships, worships that, something actually happens. This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote this to the Christians in Corinth. He says, do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, he says, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, And I don't want you to be participants with demons. So an idol can be nothing, but Paul says it can be something because it can be connected to a demon. And your worship of that idol can be participating with a demon. Doesn't sound good, does it? It isn't. In in our our culture, uh, those kind of religious idols, um, they're probably not a big deal for many of us. Most of us, are not visiting temples or worshiping shrines or statues. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook. We have all kinds of idols in our modern world. John Mark Comer says again, he says, in a secular society, the gods become non-spiritual. Money, sex, power, more followers on Twitter, flatter abs, anything that takes the place of God in your heart. The temples become shopping malls and sports stadiums and senate chambers. And and what does worship of those gods look like? It mostly looks like giving them your money or your time or your affection, you name it. But here's the thing, as as John Mark Comer concludes, he says, behind these non-spiritual, secular, non-gods, there is often lurking a real spiritual being with a scary amount of power. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, he says, when we human beings commit adultery, worshiping that which is not God as if it were, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos a power, a prestige, an authority over us which we under God were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, Whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority of the world and give it instead to that thing, whatever it is. Folks, I want you in your small groups this week to go over that quote. I think for some of you, in just N.T. Wright's words there, there's, there's a key to understanding this whole mess, okay? Like, I, honestly, step into that. But let me ask you this. What are some of the idols in our day? We already mentioned money, sex, and power. Sex, right? You you can't tell me that there isn't something demonic about our society's obsession 
with sex. And where does that obsession lead? lead? Uh, a pornography industry that objectifies people. Uh, child pornography, human trafficking, sex slavery, sexual exploitation, sexual abuse, you name it. And then money. I mean, is, is money not a god in our day? I, I, the, 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 the power it exhibits in both greed and fear. Jesus said, for the love of money is the root of all evil. He, he also named the money god, mammon. It, it has a name. He says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. And, and really, here's the point of it all. Each of us, all of us, will worship something. We're, we're made worshipers. You're a worshiper. I'm, I'm a worshiper. And we will worship or serve something or somebody. And so it makes a lot of sense for us to be very intentional and, and very careful and thoughtful about who we are giving our lives and our worship to. Years ago, quite famously, David Foster Wallace was giving a commencement address, and he said these words. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of everyday life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, you know, belief that there's not a God. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And, and then we went on to, to comment that if you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. So to say it again, there is one true creator God who made the world and everything good and beautiful and true in it. And he is better and he is greater. Worship him. And as we're gonna get to in the coming weeks, he alone is worthy of our worship. No other God deserves worship like Yahweh. No other God deserves it. He's, he's gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger <laughs> and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Love him. Worship him with everything you got, with all your heart, and with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. Let's pray. So God, uh, you know we've covered a lot of ground this morning. And uh, I, I pray that by your spirit you would apply to our hearts and our minds what we needed to hear. Help us understand the worldview of Jesus. Help us recognize that there are, are powers and, and authorities in our world that are, are, are dangerous, but none of them hold a candle to Jesus. None of them add up to him. Jesus, you actually said, you, kind of your comment on evil, in this world you will have trouble. In, in this world you're gonna bump into evil. But take heart for I have overcome the world. And so God, teach us to pray with you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and, and help us as we work with you to, to bring healing to your world, to reversing injustice, 
in all its forms. And Father, I would boldly pray, and I'm confident you will answer, that you will deliver us from the evil one and give us courage just in our everyday lives as we seek to be faithful to you to stand firm against the evil one's schemes. We pray these things in the awesome and powerful and supreme name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.